Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. Recording this on a Tuesday morning, flying less than 24 hours from now to good old Long Beach, the LBC. Ah, one of my favorite race weekends of the year. Also one of the craziest race weekends. We have IndyCar, we have IMSA bringing electrified vehicles to the good old Long Beach Grand Prix for the first time with the GTP machines. Also have the GT cars in the GTD category with IMSA. After that, we have, I think, jumpy trucks with Robbie Gordon, historic Formula One cars. I think the Porsche Carrera Cup North America is there. There's music Saturday night, drifting Friday night. Uh, the road racing drivers club dinner Thursday night with Jackie X, uh, the original Mr. Lamont. Oh, what else? Going to go see the Gurney family when I land tomorrow, then hopefully go see one or two other friends as well. It's just an amazing event. And then I'm staying over on Monday, coming home Monday night, I believe working with a friend on a documentary he's doing on a particular IndyCar legend. So I'm going to sit there and answer some questions uh, on camera for him on Monday. So this is a busy, busy blast from Wednesday morning through Monday night. Get home next Monday night. Home, I think, for what, 36 hours, something like that. Fly out Wednesday to Indianapolis, where we have the Indy 500 open test on that Thursday. Uh, and then the fallback is the Friday in case of bad weather. So bit of a busy stretch, y'all, but I love it. This is what I do, and this is what y'all love. So uh, no complaints. Let's say a big thank you, as always, to the Justice Brothers Amazing folks who've supported me for a crazy amount of time before I ever had a podcast or did any of this stuff. They've been a part of my life since I was a child. Uh, automotive chemicals and lubricants, amazing, amazing folks at the Justice Brothers. Going to say a big thank you as well to torontomotorsports.com. Going to try and tweet out the cool new thing that they just sent, and that was a whole new batch of lanyards. Did some to start the year that were. 100% of the Marshall Pruitt podcast lanyards and just printed off a new batch, which I love and appreciate that has Cooper tire has the justice brothers has TorontoMotorsports.com on it as well. This is something that they uh, started doing about a month ago and then just got in and just sent over. So if you'd like some of those, find me at a racetrack. We will uh, make sure between myself and Chris Wheeler and whomever else do our best to hand some out. If we see you, uh, so I'll try and get a photo of that up on the good old tweeters. And finally, we have friends that are connected through the USF Championships, Anderson Promotions, amazing folks who bring us USF 2000, US Pro 2000. And at the very start of the ladder, really cool new development, USF Juniors, that being Cooper Tires, who power all three tiers of the USF Championships with their tires and discount tire. So really happy to have Discount Tire on board for the year and welcome to them once again. Let's get rolling with your questions all put together here by our pal Jerry Suddeth. Jerry, thank you for helping me with this every week and do a little uh, music bed here. Not necessarily the pew, 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 but I guess I just did that. So maybe we do have it. Um, we're going to kick things off with our pal my podcast's official, official, sure, I'm just going to leave it in, official Minister of Mirth, Lance Snyder, who says, what's going to be louder, the screams of the vintage F1 cars or the screams of the IndyCar drivers on the radio about being blocked in the first round of qualifying? Yeah, so Long Beach isn't the longest track, bit of a misnomer in the city name compared to the circuit that we race on. 27 cars knockout qualifying uh it could be a little packed but again i don't necessarily have a lot of sympathy for folks who are screaming and yelling about being blocked knowing that if we've got 13 to 14 cars on track at most 
during qualifying as they split the group to start. The track's long enough to accommodate everybody. And yet, guaranteed, there's going to be someone who loses their you-know-what over being blocked. And will there be a penalty? Will there be a slight delay between rounds as IndyCar reviews footage, uh, reviews the, the timing and scoring information to see if someone impeded another person? I'm sure they will. Seems to be pretty much a staple at Long Beach. How's this? It'll be a shock if that doesn't happen at least once. Again, track length would suggest there's no reason for drivers to be on top of each other. I think where this just really becomes more of an issue is the fact that we have a decent amount of slow-ish corners. And so not only is it slowish corners, but it's not exactly places down by the water fountain, for example, to go three wide and, and go by somebody who might be just kind of limping along on an outlap trying to warm up their tires. So that's where you tend to get the stuff. You get a lot of parts of the track going from high speed to very low speed and very narrow track. And so it just becomes that much easier for someone on a hot lap to get caught up behind someone who's just not all the way up to speed. So yeah, uh, hopefully it's only one voice screaming on the IndyCar side, Lance. So therefore it'll be the F1 cars screaming the loudest. Uh, Shauna Oakwood, and I know Eric Harkrader, you also had a question about this. Shauna says, hey, MP, hope all's well in the Pruitt compound. Things are well. I've got Rocky and Rosie sleeping over my left shoulder. Uh, so all's good and all's quiet. She says, one of my favorite Long Beach moments was Simon Pagino getting up into the flowers at the <laughs> water fountain. He said, for 2023, who would you predict might get up there? Uh, who would you want to see up there? What award can we give to people who wind up doing it? Let's enjoy some SoCal sun for us stuck in the Midwest. <sighs> who, who seems ripe for getting quasi-beached, if not fully beached, up in the flower bed, which is just really beautiful, and you would hope that doesn't happen. But, uh, yeah, let me let me take a look here through the the entry list and see if any names pop out as like, okay, that one's perfect. Uh, yeah, okay. I just got it right away. Connor Daly. Uh, Connor's been having a year already. Y'all <laughs> I'm not laughing because it's funny. Uh, I'm laughing because it's like, oh man, this has just not been a kind year. So for those of you who memeify the world, just get ready to have a, a bit Nile, in the garden meme ready because it just seems like the good old cartoon anvil is finding connor daly far more often than anyone would hope but who's the backup right what if by chance cartoon anvil leaves connor alone for a weekend and things go well you know actually one of the most colorful cars at times in the series i think romain Grosjean. Uh, he's another person who whether it's self-induced or more cartoon anvils, he's been having a year. Amazing high potential shown, but, oh, Lord, yeah. So he's done two races so far, both of those ending up in the wall. Could we see him ending up perched atop flowers? would say that's a pretty strong chance there too, Shauna. So I hope that doesn't happen to both of them. But again, won't be shocked if it does. Uh, Jeremiah, say MP, you said a while back that you do not think Long Beach will be on the schedule much longer. Do you know when that might be? I'm trying to think of, of when I said that because it had to have some context, Jeremiah. It wouldn't just have been a random thing. Uh, if I recall... It was centered on the any unused areas in suburban locations here in California are becoming some sort of property development, whether it's apartments, whether it's retail. I, mean, I can tell you here in the Bay Area, my wife and I are constantly amazed when we drive around and go, oh, they're putting something there? Like, we actually recognize that I think about a week ago in this really beautiful area nearby where 
there's houses, there's little businesses and a 7-Eleven and a donut store and a car insurance place and whatever, and a little tiny strip mall. But across the street from all of that, all the houses, all the kind of suburban area, just beautiful, green, untouched nature. And the kind of the whole way out, you could drive for about 10 miles out in that direction, weaving road through the hills, same exact thing, just beautiful and untouched and has been forever. We just noticed that I guess someone sold a little piece of land there right on the corner when you drive into that area. And I don't know what's going up, but it looks like maybe a gas station and, you know, pick some restaurant or something like that. But it was just yet again and following the same theme here, Jeremiah, of, oh, Oh, okay. I I don't know if we really needed to put that there, but technically it was just unused earth. <laughs> I think it's more that. And so there have been some things of like, hey, the Anaheim Angels Major League Baseball team was looking for a new place to house themselves and propose building something right on top of where uh, the whole turn, what, 9, 10, 11 complex is where IMSA happens to pit and uh, and whatnot, and I believe that's gone away. But just say in a in a overarching sense here, you obviously get new mayors, new administrations that come into uh, cities like Long Beach, and you hope they all come in with a real sense of history and appreciating the Long Beach Grand Prix, celebrating its 48th year this year, and know that it's just something culturally that you never want to make go away. But you also have to fear, and this is without any kind of specific timeline in mind that you're asking about, where could there be an administration that comes in and says, you know what, this race is cool, but that's one weekend a year. What if we actually allowed development to take place and we can bring in taxes and income every day of the year by turning that into, again, whatever it might be. So it's more that. I hope it never happens, but if it does at some point in time... I wouldn't be totally shocked. Zach Dean, say, MP, what can you tell us about the historic F1 cars that will be at Long Beach? You say, can't wait for the 200-mile-per-hour beach party this weekend. Uh, a lot of them are, are somewhat familiar, Zach, for good old myself and others who are lovers and a little bit plugged into the vintage racing scene. Uh, run by the HMSA Historic Motorsports Association, Chris Vandergriff, a uh, really good guy who uh, runs that organization. Um, we're going to see all but two of those 20 cars on the entry list are from a pivotal point in Formula One history, uh, the Garage East era, as it's commonly referred to, where... This is not too dissimilar from 1980, late 70s and most of the 1980s in the CART IndyCar series, where during this Garage East Formula One era, uh, late 60s through very early 80s, you would go and buy a Cosworth DFV double four valves, three liter V8 engine, and build a car around it shape that thing out of aluminum for the most part this is pre-composite era uh for the majority of the cars that'll be there zach there are definitely uh some for sure that are in the early stages of composites more honeycomb than carbon fiber i don't think there are any carbon fiber uh chassis that we will see here in the vintage f1 class but uh, just a really cool evolution where I think the, the oldest car is a 1973 Tyrrell 004, which very awesome, but you can see from a evolution standpoint where you go, oh, this is pretty basic. Yes, it's got wings and it's got tires and it's got all kinds of stuff. Same three liter Cosworth DFV in the back, but you look at that and then you move all the way up to uh 81, 82, 83 chassis and tons of aerodynamics. Granted, the 83 car that Patrick Long is driving, um, that does not have ground effects. That was the first year where F1 went away from ground effects, but you definitely have a couple of cars in there that have full tunnels, full skirts, full everything that makes, uh, for its era, 
crazy amounts of downforce, really pioneering era of using the full vehicle to make downforce. So you're going to go from a basic garage east, kind of make this in your garage. The vast majority of F1 cars were all you know done with blueprints and fully drawn out. You know, anecdotally, there were some, not necessarily the finest ones made, Zach, that might have been more chalk outlines on the floor that you uh, shaped and bent tubing and panels to uh, to fit. But this was a, not a, a lot of the cars, but some of the cars from this era definitely conform to a more human passion-based formula. Folks coming together to build something and go race in Formula One compared to what we think of today with these giant billion-dollar factories, 500, 800, 1,000 employees. This was, in some instances, very much like a run-what-you-brung-type era. And so I love that aspect of it, and I also love the high-end stuff, right? The Lotuses and the, the Williams that'll be there. Zach Brown has his... World Championship winning 1980, Williams, FW07, Alan Jones from Australia, uh, amazing driver, not only World Championship winner with that, but uh, the vehicle itself is just sublime. So anyways, going to be a cool array of cars from the highest to Formula One tech back in the day to some that are a little bit more in the wilderness of the many things I have uh, planned or hope to do during the weekend. One of them, Thursday, if possible, is to go do a garage tour video of the F1 paddock. I guess I'm getting a little emotional. You can hear my voice. Sorry. <clears throat> you take a little sip of coffee there. friend of mine, Terry Malone, nickname is Piggy, worked for All-American Racers for a long time, but was also a little bit of a, a freelance-type mechanic who would uh, go from team to team as needed won the 1977 F1 Long Beach Grand Prix with Mario Andretti at Lotus. He's going to be there. I'm hoping to put a mic on Piggy and do a walk through some of those cars and knowing that he might have worked on some, but definitely would be familiar with many and see if and what kind of anecdotes he might have to offer. And then finally here, uh, bringing down, I think I went to, six gopros and some small audio recorders and have plans to record some stuff with our pal pat long and kk rossberg's 1983 monaco grand prix winning williams fw08c and then hopefully zach as well in his 1980 williams so between walk around tour maybe some anecdotes from piggy and some in car I hope to get you uh, well taken care of with the historic F1 side of this weekend. Cody Oakwood, you say Long Beach has seen a few configuration changes over the years. Uh, MP, could you give us a brief history of how the track has changed and what may have prompted those changes? Also, are there any changes to the current configuration that you would like to see? Uh, That might be a bit of a longer conversation here, uh, Cody. And also, since... We obviously do this in a audio format, uh, talking about things that really require seeing track maps and whatnot. Um, probably wrap this one up here in just a sec, but if there's a, a aspect of the event that I miss and I never saw it live, but I have seen the, the videos and obviously photos of it, is if you look at where the Long Beach track is located in the general area uh, that it's in, it is downhill off of the main strip. Come into Long Beach, whether it's off a highway or some of the city streets and whatnot, and when it comes time to actually go down into the track area, it involves making a right or left and going down. Uh, it's only about a block long from the multiple access points, but it feels like it's a 45-degree incline. It's not. It's maybe 30 degrees, but it's a pretty deep drop uh, in elevation. 
situated below in the main strip and everything else uh, in Long Beach. Well, because they're crazy and because it was really cool, the original track configuration had the F5000 cars in the first year in 1975 and then the F1 cars after that for a little bit actually using that upper main strip and they would hang a right and fall off the edge of the earth diving down (laughs) Uh, to come down and then navigate portions of the circuit that we use today and did a feature for racer magazine a year or two ago and mario andretti chose this exact thing the drop off of diving downhill and this is back when formula one cars were riveted aluminum panels and i don't know if they had a lot of uh rub blocks in the bottom of them uh skid blocks but for sure there was a bit of caution required cody because you could make up time for sure by charging along up on the main strip and hanging a right to get back onto the track by taking that huge drop down uh you could genuinely fly and cars did fly briefly during that transition but you didn't want to hit it too hard and go too fast and compress and basically smash the bottom of the chassis onto the track over and over and over again because you could break the chassis but just to know that that this crazy transition took place that drivers had to be mindful of not trying to do too much because you could be out or your butt could be exposed at the bottom of the car if you you wore and uh, ripped that part off so love that uh also lengthwise shoreline drive used to be something that went on forever uh, much longer than it is now starting earlier and going longer um been there for a number of configurations where uh you get down to kind of sort of the end of where pit lane exits and you'd make a right instead of going down a little farther making a left and heading towards the uh the fountain there uh we've gone under uh, the long beach convention center uh, and some of the parking areas there so um just yeah there have been a lot of configurations i I would encourage any of you to uh just spend a little bit of time doing some youtubing and whether it's the inaugural 75 race some of the other f1 races throughout the rest of the 70s and the very early 80s and then cart indycar taking over it's a lot of fun stuff there for sure as for what i'd change nothing really comes to mind right now um i'll give that more thought though and see if anything jumps out when i'm there this weekend kevin perez frederico you say hey mp do you feel this will be romain Grosjean's first win in indycar ran so strong during last year's edition with saint petersburg being an indication of the street course performances sure looks like he's a strong contender also ask if i'm looking forward to the historic f1 race yes absolutely um i mean groschon has absolutely shown that could have won saint pete or texas i think that's one of the cooler aspects of this new season the fact that the guy is super fast and capable hopefully shouldn't come as a surprise the fact that he also unfortunately ended up in the wall in both events first one not really putting that on him texas of course just a mistake and crash late in the race there but there's always a potential for romain to win clearly the andretti team has found something more than what they had last year i think going into long beach the andretti team gonna be my pick for the win whether it's colton kirkwood maybe kyle kirkwood our guy Kirk Kirkwood uh, or Romain, they sure were impressive at St. Pete. So I have no reason to believe that will change here. Romain's story so far throughout his career is crazy fast, crazy potential. Unfortunately, there's kind of a Takuma Sato thing that really plagued 
our Japanese friend for so long. And that was go like heck, go super fast, etc., etc. And then maybe unfortunately make a mistake that was very costly. Know that for Takuma, that was dialed down heavily in the last couple of years of his career, which is pretty amazing. Um, that's the thing I still hope will manifest for Romain, where we can say, yeah, going into this weekend at Long Beach, there's a fantastic chance that he could win the race based on speed, based on the team, based on a lot of stuff. But will there be that thing? That crops up decision to try and pass someone somewhere when clearly too much hope was involved or charge too fast through here, break too late there. That's the thing. That to me is more of Roman's challenge than getting his first win. I mean, getting his first win, second win, all those things would be fantastic. It's more a case of, can you clean up those little wild hair trigger incidents that prevent you from scoring big points and being a real force in the overall championship as well? So high potential for sure, Kev. <sighs> Just look forward to the day where there's no concern as to whether he's going to get to the finish line. Uh, let's see. Cy Harrison, MP. Hope you and your family are doing well. Thank you. So what are you hearing about Linus Lindqvist's performance at his post-Texas test? And what do you think his chances are of RLL changing its driver lineup mid-season? Shake things up, given how bad their start to this year has been. Maybe even bring in Linus in place of Jack Harvey. Did super well at the test. Really high marks from Bobby Rahal, who I spoke with. Also is texting with team manager, I apologize if I'm getting Rico Nolts exact title wrong, but uh, Rico as well, super impressed by him. I mean, you would expect such things. The kids, uh, Indy Lights champion for a reason and a winner of three open wheel championships since 2018 for a reason. What has stood out so far, even though RLL has indeed had a underwhelming start to the season is that of its three drivers, I'm still waiting for Jack Harvey to show that he is P2 or P1 on the depth chart. So that's the thing that worries me a little bit, Cy. So even if the Ray Hall team rolls off the trailers and they are first, second, and third during Friday's practice session here, if Jack's third, it'll be great if they're super quick. But if Jack continues the trend from last year of more often than not being the slowest of the three, that's the thing that will concern me. Uh, staying out of the wall, going to be another big and important thing for him. So as I wrote in some preseason content, engineering change with the, the amazing Alan McDonald on his car, that should be a huge remedy for Jack in his potential. His race engineer last year, good guy, rookie IndyCar race engineer, veteran assistant slash support engineer, but first time as a full race engineer, obviously a rough year. Uh, Jack being new to the team, uh, race engineer being new to that role, we could see how as things started to not go great where you know there's just some struggles there this is a season where all doubts are removed uh with alan mcdonald who's seemingly won everything in indycar uh there's no question as to whether jack has a race winning proven super veteran engineer been within the team for a number of years now, moved over from Graham Rahal's car. So that's where I look at Jack and say, there are no real questions here, right? If you do super well, that will fall in line with what everybody expects and will be awesome. And if by chance things do not go super well, uh, 
there's nothing really to fall back on and point to as a reason for things not going the way uh, he would want. And so I do not believe they want to make any kind of change. His contract's up at the end of the year. Believe that there's a, a fairly stiff buyout clause. Um, but if things do go bad, for whatever reason, in any kind of similar way as to how last year went, I could see the team saying, you know what, we would rather make a change and consider whether it's halfway point of the season, last couple of races, you name it. Let's do some auditions. Whether it is Linus or Yuri Vips or whomever, um, that's what stands out here. So I wouldn't say Linus would be an automatic and you're going to get in the car and it's going to be yours. If I'm the team, knowing that Bobby Ray Hall has also told me that they plan on testing at least one more new driver this season, it's incumbent upon Jack to produce, to be close to his teammates, if not ahead of his teammates, or at least one of his teammates on a somewhat regular basis. I would not suggest being welded to P3 among the three drivers there. But yeah, if there are troubled waters ahead here, if I'm RLL, I'm looking at the rest of the season as a test run. Because if you've already abandoned any chance of a quality finish in the championship, you may as well make an informed decision on who you want to take over that car. Because the final point here is this. Bringing Jack in, crazy high expectations based on what he showed at Meyershank Racing. There's no reason to believe he's going to be anything other than awesome. And I still believe he can be awesome. But there was a full belief, and they had every reason to have that belief, Cy, that the guy they were getting was going to be amazing and ass-kicking. Again, really hoping for Jack that we get to see that guy again in an RLL car. But I could understand why there might be a little bit of a, a buyer beware mentality on the RLL side if they end up deciding to make a change and wanting to say, you know what, we're not just going to wait to the end of the year and then sign somebody in the offseason and hope that they're awesome once we go racing in 2024. Let's go and see. Uh, obviously, they did this not too long ago, in uh, deciding who they're going to go with when expanding to three cars. And so had Santino Ferrucci in particular doing some impressive things there. But again, they did a little bit of a uh, in-season audition. I could see that playing out if, for whatever reasons, that number 30, Arlel Honda, uh, hits uh, an enduring rough patch. Uh, let's get down to... Yeah, we're not too far into the show, but we're going to try and keep this one a little bit short. Uh, Tim Glass, you say one follow-up on Texas. The crowd size going up is all the more remarkable if you consider that. Uh, we had a lot of other things happening in the greater Dallas-Fort Worth area that weekend. The NCAA Women's Final Four, Taylor Swift at AT&T Stadium. Uh, Rangers home opening weekend in baseball. There was an XFL home game. Uh, now I love that, Tim. The XFL took fans away. Uh, Dallas Cup International Youth Movement, and it was one week after NASCAR Coda. Yeah, uh, I hear all those things. I know that if we think about what is happening this weekend in Long Beach, I, mean, I don't have everything in front of me, but what, aren't the Lakers probably playing uh, NBA playoffs? The Clippers maybe, I think, if they get through the play-in. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be baseball of some sort between the 14 different Major League Baseball teams. I can guarantee that there are major concerts happening everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, right, I mean, there's kind of no place maybe other than, I don't know, New York uh, that has more entertainment going on between sports, plays, movies, just festivals. The greater L.A. area probably number one on almost the planet in that regard. And yet we get our second biggest crowd uh, after the Indy 500 every year at Long Beach. So I hear you, but fans of the event, fans of IndyCar and or IMSA or just racing in general, make sure that among 
all the other things that could distract them or, or take them somewhere else, uh, they show up and show out. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Robbie Bergeron say prayers for you and your wife and give the cats a couple of rubs there says I have a name in four words, Augustine Canapino rookie of the year. Well, I'm not good at counting, but I think that's six. No, wait a minute. You said four words. Well, you have a name. Well, put them all together. at six, but yeah, rookie of the year. I got it. Uh, do you agree or disagree? I think his competitiveness increases as the year wears on and he's been winning championships for a long time in Argentina at a high level. So I don't think Stingray Rob will be fast enough this year. And I don't think Benjamin Peterson is going to make up his two race deficit, uh, you know, based on the team and what they can do. I, how's this? Wouldn't be surprised if Augustine ends up winning rookie of the year. But if you think about Marcus Armstrong, who's only doing 12 to 17 races, I think he's one point behind pretty much all the rookies except for Augustine. Knowing how good that Chip Ganassi racing team is and what he might be able to do finish-wise and what those points-paying positions might be, I think this might end up being a bit of a, a heat between Armstrong and Canapino. So, yeah, uh, if you just look at true rookie of the year in terms of is this guy who comes from Argentina an open-wheel veteran? No, this guy is truly a rookie. Uh, this guy is learning open wheel at every round compared to the Armstrongs and Robs and whatnot who have dedicated many, many years of their lives to this discipline. Uh, and some of them know almost all of these tracks as well. So whether Augustine wins the Rookie of the Year or not, I would still have to say this guy's Rookie of the Year, period. Um, Ed Walk. Say MP in this past weekend season opener for the 500 sprint car tour, Taylor Ferns earned her career best finish of second after running there for the entire 75 lap feature, holding off some of the best drivers in the sport. Yes. Do you know if any of the IndyCar teams have Taylor or Kaylee Bryson or any other talented female sprint car drivers on their radar? I would be shocked if any of them did it. I mean, we would have to assume that, a short track racer like Ed Carpenter would be in the know. Obviously there would be a lot of crew and mechanics who either come from such disciplines or love such things who follow, but this is just not an arena where your Roger Penske's Chip Ganassi's Bobby Ray Hall's Michael Andretti's Ricardo Juncos's Dale coins and so on. Look, for talent or even pay attention to results because it's just so far removed from what we do in IndyCar. Uh, obviously that wasn't always the case, but if you look at a 17 race calendar, 12 of those races being road and street course events, you need someone with a pretty heavy road course background. If you want to be competitive out of the gate, Obviously, we could think about a, a one-off Indy 500 type thing, but again, haven't seen a lot of straight from short track, whether it's midgets, winged or non-winged sprints, uh, paved, dirt, you name it. We really have not seen any major examples in I don't know how long of someone being able to make that transfer to an Indy car at the Indy 500 and do extremely well. I know folks cite Brian Clausen, admittedly, and this is not opinion, this is just it's what was the case. Brian struggled, really didn't feel particularly comfortable, had to do a crazy amount of learning on the fly compared to, keep in mind there was never a massive budget to allow this, we're going to go do a bunch of oval testing and we're going to warm you up and get you ready and give you ample time. And this is even if it was allowed in the testing regulations in terms of number of days, but we're going to get you up to speed, bridging that massive difference between what you're coming from and what you're going to. We're going to just give you all the time you need so that when you do get to the speedway, 
This is just going to feel completely natural and normal. And you being phenomenally talented will be able to show all of that talent. Uh, if not the first year, your second try and so on, Brian didn't really have that opportunity. And as a result, uh, we never saw the full measure of his talent, which is sad. So that's the thing that we have to understand here, Ed, where if someone were to say, hey, Taylor or Kaylee, you're amazing and we have funding for you and let's go to the Indy 500 or one of the other ovals, as long as there would be some sort of in-depth testing program to go with that to build in massive amount of years of knowledge uh, so that they would fit right in and be able to kick ass, um, that would have to take place. I know, of course, there are some exceptions where you go, hey, Fernando Alonso had never done an oval in his life, and yet he was able to dive right in. Yeah, because the guy has spent his whole life driving cars, open-wheel cars that are as fast, if not faster, uh, well, not necessarily more than 240, but something where you go, okay, this guy is driving faster and more dynamic vehicles for a living, is world champion many times over, and for the little tiny voice that you get back from an IndyCar on the oval of what it wants for setup and treatment and all these things, this guy for decades is attuned to that exact voice. So for him, while oval racing is a new discipline, it absolutely was not something that took particularly long for him to master. Kurt Busch, obviously, he uh, picked things up super fast because, again, NASCAR, big, fast ovals, etc. cetera. Um, yeah, possible, but no. Uh, I haven't heard a thing, nor would I really expect to hear a thing, Ed, uh, unless someone really made a, a effort to campaign for them to uh, have a shot. Uh, let's see. I pick one or two more, and then we can just uh, say farewell to the show for this week. Uh, NASCAR just completed its wacky dirt weekend at Bristol, says into the Wenas verse. And early this year, had its stadium race encore in the LA Coliseum. What unorthodox race format would you like to see IndyCar try? I want to go to stage racing, first of all. No, I don't. That's just a lot of sarcasm. Huh. I'm still a fan of trying reverse circuits. And I don't know if this would come as a surprise, but let's think about Road America. So go down the super long front straight, hang a right at a big high rate of speed, wander down the hill, turns two and three, blast down even longer. What is that, turn four, I think, at the uh, the end of that long straight? Maybe it's turn five, I apologize. But then you make the left and climb up that hill. So what if we're going backwards? Well, so the obvious thing, which, again, I don't know if it comes as a surprise or not, but if we're talking about coming down that hill, braking, hanging the left, and then going up the hill under the bridge, barrier placements and tire barriers and whatever else, mostly on the right, you think of just momentum coming down that hill um you're going to hit things on the outside at a high rate of speed and harder come around the opposite way there's not necessarily a lot of tire bales and otherwise to slow you down if you run into things so this is the only aspect to my wanting to run some races backwards uh where you go okay it's not like we're just going to roll out and go we're going to have to completely redo or add a ton of stuff in terms of barrier and safety bits to make this feasible. So again, I realize that this is not a, a turnkey thing by any means, but I love the idea of instead of charging downhill and downhill forever, plunging down through the, the kink and whatnot at Road America, what about blasting upwards in a lot of places and again obviously some of the parts that are uphill now would be downhill there but that sounds like a heck of a lot of fun uh, where else would we go that might be fun to go backwards i mean <laughs> laguna sake is one i don't know we'd have to put some crazy like low all-wheel drive tractor gears in the thing maybe to climb up through going reverse through the corkscrew but that's 
my thought here. I don't know if it's a good one, but uh, it's certainly mine. Uh, why don't we go to two more? Our pal Indy Nathan asks, I get why reconfiguration at Texas might hurt the racing, but I've read several drivers say a resurfacing would hurt uh, IndyCar as well, hurt the racing. Can you explain why resurfacing, which would remove the PJ1 stuff entirely, is a bad thing? Yeah, it's the same notion that you hear at Sebring, right? It's so bumpy. It's so this. Why don't you just go and, and pour brand new tarmac over everything and it'll be billiard smooth and perfect? Um, it's interesting to hear a number of drivers as well, Nathan, who've said, I know Laguna Seca is doing a repaving here shortly, but please don't. And the reason why is you get crazy amounts of grip. You go, wait a minute, isn't that what drivers love? Isn't that what makes the cars handle better? It is. But all of a sudden, you go from having a track that is slightly worn or significantly worn, has a lot of, of textural character. Is the high line on this oval better than the low line? Is there a middle line? Who knows? I'm searching for grip because, again, it's not uniform from top to bottom because it was all just repaved. That's where real talent gets to stand out. Talk about this in terms of maybe downforce is, is another way to convey this, Nathan. I heard Joseph Newgarden talk after winning the race here at Texas saying, hey, the addition of downforce that we had was great and it really helped and it improved the racing, but I wouldn't want to go any farther. I wouldn't want to add any more. And it's because... He even felt the series went just a tiny step too far because some drivers who were very competitive, whether they're inexperienced on ovals, the lower placement of their team and the, the series rankings or just lesser talent of the driver themselves was kind of sort of hidden, kind of masked by, hey, this extra downforce can make almost anybody feel like and drive like a hero. And that's not why we're here, right? We don't want somebody who should be 25th running 15th. Kind of the same mindset here, Nathan, with repaving. Of course, you repave, and with X amount of years, you start to wear in grooves, and it starts to lose its crazy traction offerings. But you get that same exact kind of thing here, how they talk about downforce of, all right, well, if everybody has insane grip, then it's going to be even harder to separate the greats from the goods with their on-track performance because anybody can break to the last nanosecond going into this corner or that corner because there's grip waiting for them just like it's waiting for me. There's You take away some of the nuance of what makes great drivers great and they're having to perform car control demonstrations that are just mercurial and you go wow how did you go through there so quickly and you watch some slow-mo footage or whatever and you see that their hands are just sawing away with these little micro movements on the steering wheel to keep the car in line and keep it from spinning go to brand new repave and again you get tons of grip and everyone's like wow my neck is falling off because of all the g's but does strip out nathan some of that uh ability to say nope y'all don't really belong up here uh but because of this extra grip whether it's the track surface or downforce uh you're kind of up where you don't belong all right we i think let me just take one quick look here uh we're gonna close the show with lmd husky 2023 so with Callum Idlot having an excellent start to the season for the least experienced team, uh, should Hunkos Hollinger Racing be worried about losing him to a big four team with drives potentially available at Andretti Autosport, Chip Ganassi Racing, and so on for 2024? I don't pretend to know the contents of Callum's contract, but I can tell you without a doubt he is on the radar more than the two teams you've just mentioned. I spoke with one team owner who shared without a question that Callum is someone that, if he could be had, 
is absolutely wanted. So unless something wacky happens for the rest of the year and the team loses its pace, I think we're just going to be staring at a, a pretty decent and ongoing showcase of his talent. And right now I'd say there's at least half the field wondering how they might get their hands on good old Kaloum for next season uh, or whenever he might be available. Would also hate to see Ricardo Junkos and Brad Hollinger lose someone like Callum, but again, this is kind of the way it happens, right? Uh, could be the, the, the surprising rookie or surprising young player in whatever sport you love who gets maybe drafted or signed by a not great team you know for sure at some point in time the Yankees, the Lakers, the whomevers are going to come knocking, saying, hi, we'd like to sign you to a big deal and come come perform for us. It's just the way things happen. So I love this underdog small team story. It's my favorite of the year uh, with Callum and Augustine, but I will be surprised if Junko's hauling a racing isn't having to find a replacement for Callum, either for 2024 or 2025. Um, you know, we got one more question here, and it's a quick one, so I'll just cover it off. comes from Kojo617. says, can you talk about rear wing angles and super speedways? At times, they look like they're at a negative angle. Uh, would that create lift? Say, so, yeah, Alex Ross, he was talking on his podcast about IMS wings going to minus six, I believe. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, they in qualifying in particular, get tilted back, not as far as they can go, but pretty darn far backwards. Nose up uh, is another way of, of thinking about it or talking about it. And yes, it's not that they're making lift and actually creating, instead of downforce, upforce. Uh, but what you see is the shedding of as much downforce as a driver believes that they can live with. And so that is indeed part of what you're seeing where, yeah, uh, going nose up, there's still downforce being made, but it's trying to negate uh, as much downforce as I don't want to say as you possibly can, but as the driver is uh, willing to live with on those four crazy laps. Thanks again, y'all for sending everything in. Looking forward to next week's episode when Long Beach is never boring. <laughs> We're going to have some stuff, some drama to talk about for sure. Who's going to get speared in turn 11? I mean, come on. That always happens. Who gets spun? Um, there's going to be some fun for sure. So thanks again for sending in your questions. Thank you once again to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and our new friends at Discount Tire. We'll speak to you next week.